Welcome back to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Miltite. This season, we're investigating unexpected markets. On today's episode, how does a programming language unintentionally spark an entirely new market? We're standing in the middle of the street here, and we're looking around at the tall buildings, and the brownstones are beautifully laid out. Uh, the streets are rather pristine at this point, which, of course, is is not exactly how Harlem looked at that time in, in, uh, in, in history. This is Brian Carter. He's an associate professor at the University of Arizona and the director of the university's Center for Digital Humanities. He's giving us a tour of Harlem in the 1920s. But instead of hopping in the DeLorean, we're looking at virtual Harlem. It's a virtual replica of Harlem, New York, as it was in the jazz age of the 1920s. We're sitting in our studio while simultaneously moving through a completely different world. One where iconic Harlem staples like Small's Paradise, the Apollo Theatre and the Cotton Club are still standing. So as we enter the Cotton Club, we go through these gold-plated doors and uh, we enter a velvet room that's red and dark and it's, it's atmospheric. We are looking at virtual Harlem as a 2D image on a computer screen, but it was originally designed to be experienced with 3D glasses in a cave environment. That's basically a small room with images projected on all four walls. There are tables scattered around the room uh, in various locations. Some of the patrons are facing... Virtual Harlem was one of the first virtual reality environments. It was created in the 1990s, back when Brian had only heard of virtual reality in sci-fi novels. But he had no idea how it actually worked. And uh, it has a keen sense of being in a, uh, in a foreign place. He was teaching African-American literature at the University of Missouri, and he heard a call for proposals for projects that would allow teachers to transform their lessons with a brand new technology called virtual reality. Brian proposed a virtual world that would immerse students in the Harlem Renaissance. His proposal was accepted, and virtual Harlem was born. See, see, when you think about the Harlem Renaissance, it's mostly taught as a literary movement. But there were so many other things going on during that time, all inspired by the, uh, the vibrancy of a city like New York, which really gives us a sense of why it's so important to be able to visualize this place. Before virtual reality, Brian's students couldn't picture the rows of giant buildings described in the literature, and they weren't all that interested in stories so far removed from the present. Virtual Harlem changed all of that. His students were no longer just imagining the past, they were walking down its streets. This was, I believed, the wave of the future. What I didn't know was that um, the technology would evolve as quickly as it has and that digital humanities would become a part of the, uh, the agendas of almost every research institution in the world. Virtual reality hasn't just spread to every research institution in the world, it's spread everywhere. From video games to military training, from education to healthcare, virtual reality is popping up in nearly every field. And now it's becoming a multi-billion dollar industry. Even though the ways we use VR are new, the technology behind it is not. At the base of virtual Harlem and most virtual worlds today is a coding language from the 70s. It's called C++, and it was intended to do all sorts of things, but creating virtual worlds was not one of them. Today's unexpected market? Virtual reality. 
How did the programming language help virtual reality grow from a crazy idea to a revolutionary new wave across industries? And what will the real world of the future look like with a virtual skin? To understand the future, we need to step back into the past. Before VR and the technology that enabled it, the world looked pretty different. Uh, let's start with the computers. They, they tended to fill a room. And a computer that filled a room is about a thousandth of the speed of a Raspberry Pi. And uh, at the time, people still thought bell-bottoms uh, trousers were fancy. This is Bjarne Straustrup, Managing Director in the Technology Division of Morgan Stanley in New York. In 1979, Bjarne wrote C++. Today, it's in all kinds of technologies. You've most likely interacted with C++ without even knowing it, and you may never have heard of it. We know it's hard to visualize a programming language, but think of it as software. You have to understand you can't see software. Software is sort of invisible. It's, it's very abstract in some sense, like math. Without software, computers and machines are useless. They're just slabs of metal and silicon. It's the software, a program like C++, that actually brings them to life. If you think about a car, right, there's a steering wheel and there's the pedals and things that we see and we use. And inside is the, the engine and the brakes and things like that. And, and so my job is to get those two parts to, to talk to each other. Bjarne wanted to write a language without limitations, a code flexible enough for purposes he couldn't yet imagine. But it took years for C++ to grow from that desire to a full code. I guess people have this image of somebody working with computers, sitting at a computer typing late at night eating pizzas or something like that. Uh, no, that's not the way it is. I reckon that most of C++ was invented on my friend's blackboards. Mathematicians have blackboards, not whiteboards. Uh, just a curiosity. And so a, a lot of the work... Bjarne would go into his friend's offices to discuss the numbers crashing through his brain. And eventually, C++ emerged. Bjarne then took his new language to conferences, explained how useful it could be to programmers around the world. And before he knew it, people were using it. It just spread. I mean, the 80s is just a blur to me. I implemented the language, meaning you write a compiler that translates the language on, into machine code, and I wrote some of the libraries, I wrote the textbook, I was the help desk. It took me quite a long time to realize that something was going on because I was too busy doing it. Unless you manage to live your life free of all technology, you probably interact with C++ every day. Internet browsers, they're written in C++. If you watch a movie with animation, that's thanks to C++ too. It's the backbone of the gaming industry and the financial industry. You might not have a robot or a self-driving car, but C++ is way ahead of you. It's already part of autonomous driving and artificial intelligence. You've got it on Mars, you've got it in space, you've got it down under the sea. So it's, it's in quite a few places. It just turned out to be useful. Saying C++ is useful is like saying oxygen is helpful. If you're going to live in the digital age, it's no longer just useful, it's inescapable. Today, C++ can be used in so many different ways precisely because Biana designed it to be general enough to do, well, anything. People call the computer the universal machine because you can program it to do anything. C++ is a universal language. You can use it to program the computer to do anything. 
At Morgan Stanley, Bjarne wrestles with a huge range of computer science challenges, ones that have real consequences for the world of finance. He's also an advocate for open source, and outside of Morgan Stanley, he's helping to develop new standards for open source in the C++ world. That work, and all he's done with C++, has made Bjarne a bit of a celebrity. He's often invited to places around the world to check out how other people are using his language. That's how one day he found himself at the office of a large social media company playing with a dragon. And uh, had smoked the dragon come and blew fire at me. And uh, they also dropped me into um, one where you get shot on from all areas. It was very realistic. I jumped to avoid a bullet, even though I knew it was fake. These days, C++ is used to program VR, too. It's just one of the many unexpected ways Bjarne's language is being implemented. It's very much like, like game programming. You have a lot of characters that are um, generated by the computer. In VR, you have characters, a dragon perhaps, and it's C++ that gives those characters life. C++ actually tells the dragon to blow fire or the bullet to go racing past your arm. It's what makes that world in the computer feel real. I mean, of course, there's nobody in there. There's no dragon, there's no dwarfs, there's no flying cars. But you see them and uh, you hear them. At the end of the day, a lot of consumers want that kind of escape. That's why we go to gaming. That's why we go to uh, movies and watch TV. This is Alexis Macklin. You kind of forget about that screen in front of you and you're getting completely immersed. Well, VR is the next level of that. You're really putting yourself in that environment. Alexis is an analyst with Greenlight Insights. Greenlight Insights is a market research firm focused solely on virtual and augmented reality. She's the person who has looked at the numbers and can confirm that virtual reality is indeed very popular. For the global revenue, what we're seeing by the end of this year is about a uh, $14 billion industry. That's a combination of virtual reality investments from big companies and all those individual VR headsets your friends have bought to play VR games at home. $14 billion is already more than double the global revenue of last year, and that number is expected to get a lot bigger. More realistically, we're seeing by uh, 2022 about an $82 billion industry. Alexis says that kind of growth is possible because VR is transforming so many industries. There's a lot of different use cases, but basically what it boils down to is it's reimagining the dangerous and then possible situations that a lot of industries are dealing with. So whether that's uh, a military training, they can do that more realistically in VR to the impossible of maybe bringing an aircraft uh, carrier into a business office. Architects will design buildings around virtual objects. Friends will grab virtual coffee. You can see someone who you know, is hundreds of miles away and talk to them as if they're right there with you. Kids will go to virtual school. So you could go to the best school in the world and not have to worry about if your bus can get there or not. You might even go on virtual vacation. You know, you're never going to uh, make that trip to Antarctica, but you're really interested, or maybe the bottom of the ocean. You can really get that environment and not have to go anywhere. The sky's the limit in terms of what's possible. This all might still sound like an impossible future, something out of another sci-fi story like Ready Player One. In that movie, it's 2045, and the world is so terrible that everyone spends as much time as possible in a virtual world, with virtual jobs, virtual school, and virtual games. And while Alexis says we won't reach that future overnight, that is the direction we're heading. 
I don't know if we'll see everyone forget the real world for um, a virtual one by 2045. At least I hope not. But I think that does kind of hint towards uh, the future that a lot of people are looking at in terms of making the world kind of a smaller place. So this is definitely something to pay attention to when you're thinking about your five-year plan is uh, to definitely think about how VR will affect that. That's a crazy thought. What started as numbers on blackboards and impossible dreams in science fiction will one day be the new normal. In 1979, Biana didn't set out to create a programming language that would spark an entirely new market. But like C++, VR has grown from a curiosity to an inescapable industry. As the technology for VR evolves, Virtual Harlem has too. It's being developed for VR headsets and the world is becoming more interactive. The stage at the Cotton Club will one day feature dances by virtual characters copying movements of Brian's real-life students. And eventually, Virtual Harlem will once again be populated by real people like you and me, or at least virtual versions of you and me, who can explore the neighbourhood together and even sit side by side to watch a show. Brian is excited about the future and all that VR can still do for his teaching, but nothing will ever be as exciting as the very first time his students interacted with Virtual Harlem their first virtual world. When they first were introduced to it, I'll never forget, uh, we were in, at the University of Missouri, we had a one-walled cave, which basically, instead of having four walls with the screens that were backlit, uh, we had one big screen at the front of a room that was curved. And so students wore passive 3D glasses. And the first time we went into this theater, which was a tiered, uh, seated theater, they didn't know what to expect. And so I took my place at the head of the room, uh, had them put their glasses on and uh, then we launched Virtual Harlem and I looked at their faces and as things were floating by them as we moved by people and and places I could just see them looking all around as if they were on a tour. And seeing it for the first time was exciting for me too. My grandparents used to go to the Cotton Club. Get out of here, really? When they were dating. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's um it's a yeah, it's a lost world, so it is it is really fun to be able to see a representation of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it would be quite interesting to go back there now. I grew up hearing my grandmother's stories of speakeasies and prohibition, but it's a completely different experience to see the same patterns on the wallpaper or where she would have sat near the stage. It's amazing to know I can go to that world in the past and wherever this technology will take us in the future. Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. If you want to listen to our previous episodes, you can head to morganstanley.com ideas. I'm Ashley Miltite. Thanks again for listening.